time has come. I like that. The time is now for Victoria Stilwell's Positively Podcast. She's a world-renowned dog trainer. Seen enough dogs today, have you? She's the host of It's Me or the Dog. I'm coming to train you. Along with co-host Holly Ferfer. You don't play around with that name, do you? I am a fan of Shreddy Balls. She's Victoria Stilwell, and she's ready to go. This is a lovely way to start the day. You get the busy bee. I need to trim her whiskers. I see some poo here. I feel a little bit better now because I'm the only one who usually feels stupid during the podcast. Now, let's head to the studio and get this Positively Podcast started. I can't believe another week has gone by, but we are back, and I'm very excited for my next guest. I, I know I say that at the beginning of every single podcast, but that's just because I have amazing guests. And because of popular demand, he's back. And his name is Andrew Hale. He is a certified animal behaviorist, and he is a certified member and trustee of the Association of Interdogs. I have done a lot of work with him with the UK Dog Behaviour and Training Charter that um, VSPDT and other great organizations are members of in the UK. It provides assurance to the public and other professional bodies that the practitioner they employ has been checked, supported, and monitored by a reputable accrediting member organization. But before Andrew speaks, because man, does he have a lot to say, and you are going to learn so much. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this study that just came out regarding shock collars. Now, I know we've spoken a little bit about this before on the podcast, but there's just been a new study that a new research or research from the University of Lincoln, which was published in Frontiers in Veterinary Science, and it finds that um, in, and I'm quoting this, in a typical situation where proponents of electronic collars, shock collars, they are also known, often recommend them, positive reinforcement training by trainers who specialized, who specialize in reward-based training works better than training with or without a shock collar by trainers who would normally use a shock collar. And the scientists are saying that these findings from this latest study, and there have been quite a few studies on this, refute the suggestion that training with an e-collar is either more efficient or results in less disobedience, even, and this is important, in the hands of experienced trainers. In many ways, they go on to say, training with positive reinforcement is found to be more effective at addressing the target behavior as well as general obedience training. This method of training also poses fewer risks to dog welfare, as in reward-based um, reward training, also poses fewer risks to dog welfare and quality of the human-dog relationship. Given the results the researchers saw, they suggest that there's no evidence to indicate that e-collar training or shock collar training is necessary, even for its most widely cited patient. Well, I posted this on my Facebook page because my Facebook page is a place where we put all kinds of information for dog lovers, even if it's information that we don't really agree with 
or even if it's information that we know others aren't going to agree with, it's still a study, it still needs to go out there. And we got very passionate people on both sides arguing their case, whether this was not an effective study or this was the best study that's been done on this subject or that um, some of the environments were different, that the groups, different groups were training in and the weather was different and all this kind of stuff. And the, a lot of support for this is not a good study or this is not a thorough study and a lot of support for this is a good and thorough study. I mean, depending on what side of the fence you are, you're going to look at this in the way that is confirmation bias that confirms your already deep-seated opinion of whether shot color training is good or not. So the reason why I want Andrew back on the podcast is that he's got a really good point in that you can argue all you like, you can quote all the studies you like, you can say what is right and what is wrong, but at the end of the day, you are missing the point. Andrew, thanks for coming back on the podcast. We have a lot to talk about. We need to, as you say, in your words, deconstruct the argument. So welcome. Hi, Victoria. Thanks for having me back. This is, I know, a big subject. It's a very emotional subject. But I am excited about what you have to say because I think what you say is right on point. Well, thank you. I think um, for, the, for the listeners who don't know, I've got a human psychology background. And, and I brought that very much with me into the world of, of working with dogs. And I... Uh, I see the dog as my client and I see their owners as the dad, as their carer, my client's carer, if you like. I know that sounds a little bit pretentious, but that's how I see it. And um, I've, whether it's working with humans or working with dogs, if we truly want to help that individual, the human or the dog, any animal, we have to try and step into that animal's experience. And this is why I think all this discussion that we get, not just about shock collars, but <clears throat> Uh, kind of aversives uh, in general uh, and uh, we get stuck in what I call the opera merry-go-round because the, the quadrants especially you know uh, arguing about what is and what isn't and what works and what doesn't work we have to start from a point and this is why I like this idea that, that you and I have kind of come up with about deconstructing this argument a little bit we have to just start by recognizing the aspect which is that projection of the human narrative. So we, as the humans, we've already decided what good behavior is, what bad behavior is. We've decided uh, what we expect. And uh, like we discussed before, when I, when I spoke to you before, as a species, we are very judgmental of behavior. We, we like to put it on that continuum of good to bad. And that's because we have a societal structure around us. So in that sense, it's right, because we have social cohesion and um, the rule of law and that kind of thing. But our dogs don't know that we've decided that their behavior is bad uh, or that their behavior is naughty. They are expressing through their behavior that emotional 
usually that emotional response that they're having or, or you know whatever that neurological physiological or hormonal system is is triggering for them so this is the thing about trying to step into the into the animal's experience so when we do we start to realize that any deliberate challenging or shutting down of a behavior is just that that's all we're doing we're, we're telling the dog don't do that but what we're also telling the dog is and i don't care why you're doing it or why, how you're feeling uh, and it's interesting in the human psychology world uh, and uh, i had a chat with a with a human psychology colleague a little while ago uh, and she was just really shocked that we're stuck in this operant discussion all the time because in the human world we don't tend to, to have it so much. <clears throat> so this is the thing about us missing the point. So <clears throat> uh, when we think about shock collars, if we are purely using a narrative of a criteria of a reduction or elimination of a behaviour, well of course shock collars work. Rolled up newspapers work, pet correctors work, whatever it is, they work because they're going to stop a behavior. And, and this is the thing about the science. And this is why we have that kind of merry-go-round uh, with the operant things, with different scientific studies looking in different ways. And it's very hard. It's easy to measure behavioral output. It's harder to measure the animal's experience. What we need for the animal's experience <clears throat> is two very important components that science doesn't necessarily have an angle on. One is empathy and the other is compassion. And if you start thinking about that dog's experience, if you start really, we learn a lot about body language, don't we? We learn a lot about body language. People on both sides of the fence go to a lot of expense to learn about body language. And then we forget that actually it's the only way, behavior is the only way that the dogs have to communicate to us. So a lot of the time we learn about body language and then we throw that knowledge out the window because we just, all we're obsessed about is how do we challenge this behavior? How do we change this behavior? Even using positive reinforcement, Victoria, this is important. There is a risk with the power that operant training gives us. And this is the point. Dogs are very susceptible to the power of an operant approach because we can manage so many of the contingencies for them and we can deliver so many of the consequences. There is a risk, even with positive reinforcement, that we end up creating a behavior that we find more appropriate. It's back to that projection of a human narrative again a behavior that we find more appropriate, but still isn't giving the dog the relief that they were seeking from their original behaviors. So this is not just an anti collar thing, it's, obviously we'll come on to that more specifically in a minute, but it is about, it's time to think more about trying to be more mindful of the dog's experience and why that behavior was manifest in the first place, um, if that makes sense. It, 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 absolutely makes sense and you put it so well and so clearly and i hope that there's people listening that the penny's dropping oh my god so the word you use is relief and we're so focused on positive 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 and yet sometimes, or before COVID, when I would go and watch a class and I, I'm going to watch a group lesson and I'm seeing these dogs having to repeat a sit 10 times. 
but it is positive, right? So it's rewards and the dog looks like it's having a good time, but some of them, it's almost, they're tolerating. And there is more emphasis on, oh, look, my dog can sit, well done. Rather than, is my dog having a, truly enjoying what he's learning or just tolerating it? And we're using positive. We're, we're, we're being humane, we're being kind. Yet this is not fun for the dog and this is not providing relief and the dog is desperate to get out of there. It's something that has niggled at me for years. And I have to be honest, it's something that put me off group classes, especially for a long time. Because I was fed up of going into town halls and to, to places and to see there's just this repetition, this stress, this, because as long as you get to teach your sit, stay and come when called in your first session or your second session, then it's, it's a result and you get a nice little certificate at the end of your six weeks. You do, but your dog hasn't had a great time and it hasn't had that relief. And that's why my academy, we are so focused on, we don't put it like you put it so beautifully, relief, but we're so focused about on the animal's experience because it's something that's been missing, especially when we are training differently. Right, so that was all really awesome, Victoria, because uh, I've gone a bit uh, goosebumpy here listening to you talking because it's really refreshing hearing that. And, and you're absolutely right. What you're doing at the VSA um, is you're taking some of the traditional building blocks around the educational side of things, but you're adding more and you're joining the dots and you're building up a, a, a kind of um, a centered care approach around the dog. I want to pick up on a couple of things here. And I'm probably going to get lambasted for this, but this is just my view on things. But we do need to rethink a lot of stuff because, again, yeah, yeah. the problem of being stuck in the operant merry-go-round. I'm not anti-operant stuff, by the way. It's a part of what we do. It's always there. But but we're so fixed on it. And um, I just want to talk a little bit about relief first. Then I want to come back to the kind of the thing you were talking about, the classroom thing. So this is all very important. This is all still related to the shop color stuff as well. I talk about relief a lot because in my opinion, in my very humble opinion, it's the most important word in the psychology of behavior. Because when you think about a nervous system that is at rest and it's just nicely settled, when that nervous system starts to engage, um, the body through that homeostasis process wants to get back to that settled state. Uh, and in other words, it needs relief. Even if you're having a good time, you know, me and you, Victoria, when we're down that club back in the good old days, dancing away, we're having a really good time. Abba's on, we love a bit of Abba, we're booging away. <laughs> we, our body at some point is going to say, whoa, enough, I need relief. I need relief for this. So, so relief is a very tangible thing. It's a very real thing. But when we start thinking about emotional responses, especially, the need for relief is everything. So when you see that dog lunging and barking at another dog, an aspect of that through the 
neurology, physiology, and hormonal responses in that dog is that that dog really needs relief. It doesn't want to feel like that anymore. This is one of the reasons that we have emotional emotional responses and feelings that they're they're used interchangeably. They're a little bit different. I won't go into that now. But but that's the whole point of having them. It's like I don't like this. I need to feel differently. I need relief. How is adding a shock collar in at that moment offering that dog any relief? All we're saying is shut up. Um, but even if we use positive reinforcement, so an example I give is pulling on the lead. So the dog's pulling on the lead, we don't like pulling, um, and I get it because we don't want to be dragged down the road, I get it. So we try and get the dog to walk on a loose leash, great. And for many dogs that's great because it can be taught the dog's learning stuff because they need to learn, okay, this is okay, this is how we need to walk safely. But for some dogs, what if that pulling was the byproduct, the symptom of their generalized anxiety? What if, what if it is the symptom of the fact they don't like the traffic? What is it as a symptom that the environment's too triggering for them? And this is why a lot of people, when they get taught loose leash walking, when the brain's in the right gear, the dog's like, oh yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. Then they get triggered by the environment, the pulling happens again. But the owner, the carers, I like to call owners, is never told about this stuff. So they just think the dog's being disobedient. Uh, that they're being naughty or it's not working. Coming back to the school thing, we've even got to rethink how we do puppies, Victoria. This is just my view again, but um, I don't do puppy classes. I do one-to-ones. Even the really good puppy schools out there, there is a little bit of a bias towards thinking that all puppies learn in the same way and that they process in the same way. My big bias when I was involved in human psychology, and it still is now a little bit, is, is about processing, is how we process stuff. So we have sensor integration, which is how our senses take on information to feed the brain with information, including our internal senses. Our brain needs to make sense of that. It needs to, and it goes through so many different processes. When I first meet a puppy, I want to just learn from that puppy. How, puppy, how do you need to process this environment to feel safe? How do you need social engagement to work? How do you need to process that social processing before social engagement? All these kind of questions. And then build a socialization program for that dog. When we put young dogs, any dog, doesn't have to be puppies, uh, into that hall environment, it's a little bit like the comprehensive system here in the UK where we make a presumption that all the kids are going to learn at the same time, that developmentally they're all going to do the same. And the thing is for a big core of them, they'll do all right. But for some of those dogs, Victoria, just being in that village hall is a huge win. But when you have this projection of a human narrative, again, uh, kind of projection of that human criteria and agenda, a tick list that that dog has to do in order to be a good dog, and we feed into this narrative for the owners and stuff, I find it very problematic. I find it very problematic. Good trainers get this stuff and, and they kind of, and it's the learning style of the dog, the learning style of the owner, and they make adaptions. But, but sadly, that isn't the norm. The norm is still, yeah, I'm really sorry, your dog can't come anymore or, uh, you know, just keep doing it. And we wonder why uh, a lot of this training doesn't get proofed very well or doesn't transfer well. Because the dog's part of the brain that needs to really bank that and get it and process it. It just hasn't. It's just skimmed the surface of that and it ends up becoming a robotic thing because the dog just in a stress response goes through the motion, you know. So these are things to think about again about the dog's experience and, and when we think about coming back to aversives and things for me i see dog training uh, the teaching of new behaviors to dogs as being the other side of the behavior coin now a, a really good friend of mine lucy lucy olders over here in the uk we, we discussed this together so i thought i'd 
give Lucy a mention there. And we discussed this together. And I'll explain this because again, this will help us again when we start thinking about why aversives or, or even heavy handling, the, the damage it does. Because on the one side, we have body language, learning about body language, stress signals, learning how dogs communicate to us. When you think about it, teaching a dog, training a dog is actually how the dogs learn how we communicate to them. Now we see it as in a series of cues. So I'm communicating six, I'm communicating this, but we're communicating way more. We're communicating how we deliver ourselves to that dog. Now take yourself back to school, right? I had a school teacher, Mr. Wilson, who was an absolute ass and uh, he was really horrible. He bullied me. Uh, he was my geography teacher. I don't remember anything he taught me, but I do remember becoming fearful of authority. I remember being fearful of making mistakes. I remember being fearful of the topic. I remember this stuff because he was teaching me more than just the subject. He was teaching me how adults interact with children, how power interacts with subordination. So this is why when you think about it, actually teaching is not just about delivering the cue, it's about saying to that animal, this is how humans communicate with you. And if that communication is harsh, if that communication is stressful, and if that communication is unjust, and I say unjust, because this is another issue with a lot of aversive-based training. They have to elicit the behavior first. So I use the snake analogy a lot for, for this kind of thing. If I put a snake there, uh, Victoria, and you don't like snakes much, you will react. You'll have, you'll have an instant neurological, physiological, and hormonal reaction, and that will translate into a reflexive behavior. Your thinking brain won't work very well. You'll just do something, screaming and shouting, maybe. The, um, the issue there isn't your behavior, it is if I make it so. If I decide as the calm bystander that I don't like your behavior, I can tackle your behavior all alike. The problem is how you feel about the snake. That's the real, that's the real thing there. But I need to, but you need to, I, with this thing about some of the unjust training, when you have a dog who struggles around dogs and you introduce another dog to elicit the behavior, to then zap them with the shock collar, it is no different to me putting you in the reptile house at Paynton Zoo up the road here, knowing you're going to have a scream and a shout and then just punish you for it. Well, so what am I telling you now about the, the kind of system, the culture that you're around? Now, this might sound like I'm anthropomorphizing a little bit because obviously, you know, dogs don't rationalize in that sense, but in a very, on a very primal mammal way, they are having that same experience. So all this is important, isn't it? When we start to deconstruct it, even just how we decide to teach our dog, we are giving away way more in that process than just teaching them a cue. We're teaching them about the world around them, about feeling safe, about communication. So this is the thing where we have to rethink things. So coming back to the shop stuff, um, we can have as much science as you like, about whether in some contexts it's better, in some contexts it isn't. I can pretty well guarantee you it ain't good for the dog in any context. And, and it's surprising when we think about it, and let's be clear about this, but in 2020, we're still having a debate, even amongst academics, even amongst our own colleagues, 
And you and I know colleagues who are on our side of the fence who are still apolog apologists for them. Um, they're, not, they're not condemning them. That in 2020, we're still talking about delivering an electric shock to an animal, a companion animal, in the name of training. Um, and, and there is obviously an understanding of this because many of our colleagues who use these tools, they very rarely call them electric shock collars. They will call them an e-collar, correction collar, a static collar, a buzz collar, whatever, because uh, electric shock collar doesn't sound right, does it? But this is a whole different psychology altogether, uh, Victoria, because I've always found it quite interesting that we sell tools called shock collars, choke chains, you know, and yet people seem to not compute the choke bit or the electric bit, but that's another story. So when we start thinking about the dog's experience, when we start recognizing the, what I class as the emotional drive to behavior, that real experience of the animal, that elevation of that nervous system response in a certain context, and we recognize the real tangible need for relief, we can all know what that feels like, then how can a shock collar ever help? Now then we get all the kind of things thrown us, don't we, Victoria, where people say, yeah, but what about the fact that uh, you know I've got this land and I need to keep the dog safe because if it runs off my land, I haven't got any fences and it might run into the road. Or uh, what about rattlesnakes? Or this dog's so bad it's going to lose its life. Or chasing sheep. Or sheep. Or yeah, there's a big list of stuff that gets put there. As long as we're clear that all of those scenarios come back to that projection of the human narrative again, then that is the issue, not the dog. I, I think I said to you before that you know I, I don't have snakes around here, I don't have sheep around here, actually we do up on the moors, we're not here, but I do have cars. So I keep my dog on a leash when I'm walking around the streets to keep it safe. Um, we don't, you know, we keep young children on reins when they're young so that they don't run into the road. You know, we, we do stuff like this. Um, I went to see uh, somebody on the, on the moors uh, last year actually, who uh, had got an invisible fence for their dog with the, with the collar uh, on it. Uh, and they, the dog had other issues. And I said, well, I think there's a big relation to the fact that this dog just looks stressed out his eyeballs, just even on their land, because it had been shocked so many times. Um, and I had to persuade them, you know, they've got acres, huge house and money. I had to persuade them and, I, and they did listen that why don't you just make a small little area, which is actually quite a big area, that is enclosed for the dog and everybody's happy. Uh, so this is the point. Uh, we can have these if you want to use them as ways to somehow submit these arguments as a reason for having the tool. But it's about our expectations of these animals again. We expect them to do these things that actually, you know, we have a responsibility to their care. Uh, and if we have to make the animal endure a really horrific, aversive punishment that has psychological impact, because let's be clear, that's why they work. Um, we just have to be clear about what it is. Um, yeah. Everything that you're saying makes complete and utter sense. And we were also talking before we actually started recording this podcast, we were talking about um, the fact that your science is important, but we shouldn't be led by it. We don't, we don't need to be led. We, we can be led by science, but not defined by it. He said that I, I, I think it's, with me 
but anecdotal evidence. So living in the United States, I have much more access to people who wear, who have their dogs on shock collars than say in the UK, because shock collar use is, is big here. It's big business here. And so they use it for companion dogs and I've seen it being used on working dogs. And then of course, working with the police, the many police departments actually require in their laws that a shock collar is used on the dog. So I've experienced and been around uh, people that have used shock collars on their dogs, whether they have companion dogs or whether they have working dogs or whether they're sport dogs. So I've had a lot of experience of watching the dog. And it's my anecdotal experience. It's part of the reason why I don't like shock collars is because I've watched the dog in every scenario for years and years and years. And I'm seeing the same thing. I'm seeing there's stress. I'm seeing that a lot of whimpering. And this is not when they're depressing the collar, by the way, the depressing the remote, depressing the remote. They're, that's the whimpering is there the entire time. It's almost a manifestation of stress. But I, I almost see dogs that are not allowed to think. And that, and, and who are completely disempowered. And you know, it's, it is bad when shock collars are used as punishment, as a corrective tool. But I think what's even worse is when shock collars are used as a, a, as a negative reinforcement tool. There's a company here in Atlanta that puts all of their dogs on shock collars, regardless of whether it's a, it's a, a, a Jack Russell or, or a Doberman. And the way they teach their dogs is that they will press that button and have shock, 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 shock until the dog puts its bottom on the ground. Let's say they're teaching to sit. And so that dog is constantly getting shocks until it performs the behavior that it's being asked to do. And once it does, then the shock is taken away, right? So negative reinforcement. That is so unbelievably painful to watch. And that's where I see the whimpering all the time, even when the dog has finished the behavior, performed the behavior, and it's done. The dog is whimpering. And I see also a restlessness, an inability to settle. It a pacing, a, a worry, a furrowed brow. When you're talking about body language, it seems like you can argue all you like for your shock collar training. You can argue all you like, all you like about your wonderful positive operant training class. But you're missing the main point you're not looking at the dog's body language. And even if you are, you're not listening. And this is what it's about at the end of the day, not this study is this and this and the environment's bad and blah, 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 blah. It's not. 
it's about that experience. It's about listening and we're not listening. And I'm telling you, if dogs could have five minutes to which they could speak in the language to their person that the person would understand, I don't know of a single dog that would say, yeah, actually, punish me with a shock collar. Put an electric shock on me and zap me, um, tap me, do what I, just do it because, whoa, it feels good. And this is going to bring me on to my next question for you. Can we talk about the psychology of punishment? I, I said a lot there. Yeah. No, but, but you're dead on. And it's really great, you know, because you, you talk so eloquently and so passionately, Victoria. And this is, and it's important too because um, it's how we try and connect. I'm going to come on to the psychology of punishment in a second. I just want to mention something that's just connected to what you said there. And this comes back to, you talked at the beginning about confirmatory bias and stuff. And what we have to recognize is that we all have our own belief system. We have a belief system. This is very much uh, um, been kind of laid bare with the Black Lives Matter uh, thing and uh, people who have casual racism but don't recognize it because of their own belief system and the belief filters that are there are designed to support the, your belief system. Part of the issue with the electric shock collar uh, specifically is we have a huge amount of professionals whose belief system won't allow them to see anything different. Those belief filters are shutting things away and they are also delivering this tool to caregivers, to owners, in such a way that bypasses some of the caregivers' initial belief system around the, the care and compassion for their dogs and almost makes them believe a new, have, you know, create a new belief system around what well, it's for the dog's good. And I just wanted to throw that in there because I think that's important. And also I just want to throw something else in as well, and it's a big one for me. So many people, I know quite a few well, uh, uh, as, as friends of mine uh, as well, and, um, and some who are quite well known in the industry, who really get compassion and empathy and they read body language until they're doing their sport. So that could be agility, it could be the IPO stuff, especially the kind of you know, security stuff. They are so into that moment of what they're doing and that connection with the sport, they're not seeing what they're seeing in front of them with the dog. And the question of shock collars, especially in IPO work, when we start thinking about, and I think this is probably why we end up having these mandates with the police saying that they have to have them on because if they're needed and they need to stop that dog from going nuts, they need to do something. The question mark really for me, should we be having these wonderful animals do this kind of stuff in the first place? I'm probably going to shut down for that. But, but this is the point, you know, we have to think about things a little bit differently, you know, if we're saying, oh, yeah, but in that situation, when the dog's in that kind of state, then we can only really train that by using this particular aversive. Well, why put the dog in that situation in the first place? Why are we creating sports that deliberately create a stress response in a dog? And then and I just thought I'd throw that in there. So the psychology of punishment is a really important one. What you've just described there, Victoria, about your observations of some of these dogs, some of these dogs who become almost non-operant, they, they almost become robotized. You will see the same if you look into the face of somebody who's been the victim of domestic abuse. Uh, you'll see the same uh, in the eyes of a child who has got to the point that they are too scared to behave like a child. 
for fear of punishment. My husband and I were at Alton Towers, which is a big amusement park over here in the UK. It's really small compared to yours, but it's big, mm -hmm. big for me. Um, and we, uh, and I remember being in the queue and uh, seeing all these kids running around being kids, really. Uh, apart from one kid, and I, and I just, I, I can see his face now. And he could have been just a very quiet, sensitive kid, but it's the way he was looking at his father. I thought, yeah, you can't be a kid. There's just something about it. And this is the point. If we, if we can't learn safely, if we can't make mistakes safely, and if we can't deliver a behaviour, especially one that is reflexively given, for fear of that kind of negative output, that has got to pay havoc with how you process stuff in the environment. Rather than processing things freely, here's information, how do I feel like it, how will I act? You're adding another big component in there. Um, uh, 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 your friend of mine, uh, Kathy Murphy, Dr. Kathy Murphy, she can talk a lot about the neuroscience on this stuff. And um, if you haven't had her on already, get her on because she knows about this stuff. And I think, and I'm not here, I, I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm just looking at the psychology stuff. But the psychology of punishment, when we think about it uh, in uh, kind of human terms initially, punishment can only work in one of two ways when we think about it, when we deconstruct it. So let's think about going to prison, for example, that, that, that kind of ultimate sanction that we have as a society, taking somebody's liberty away. Uh, the main reason for prison uh is some ways is two things one a political one because we have to put the baddies away right and secondly and quite rightly we've got to keep people who might do harm away from society that's that's that but on a punishment level about it working prison or any kind of punishment really in that sense only works in the true sense if there is a sense of internal processing of it so in other words, I am remorseful for what I've done. I've thought about my actions. I've learned from them. Uh, and I will seek to, be, to do better. The other way that the punishment works is that the fear of being in prison again, the fear of being caught again, becomes greater than your need or your emotional drive or your propensity to give that type of behavior. When we think about dogs, it's very unlikely that they're going to ever think, oh yeah, do you know what, I'm so, I'm, it's really bad of me. Uh, I'm really sorry that I did that. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna be a good dog from tomorrow. I'm, I'm really sorry, I'm very remorseful. So therefore the only other type of punishment, the only other way that punishment can work then is for the dog to think, oh, I better not do that again because I don't wanna have that happen to me again. And then we come into the differences between suppression and oppression. Quite often with many punishers, especially uh, the ones that are delivered at home with a lot of the tools that are there, whether they be quite mild things like a, um, uh, pebbles in a tin, coins in a tin or a pet corrector that compressed there, or shop collars. If the dog's emotional response to the punisher in the moment is greater than their emotional response to the trigger. So for example, the dog barking at a dog through the window and then the pet corrector goes off and that startles them or, or, or affects them, then they will stop the behavior, but invariably the, the, as in they suppress it. The next time a dog goes past, they're probably gonna do the same thing again. So you and I, Victoria, we have people phone up say, oh, my dog barks out the window all the time and we've tried everything. What they mean is they've tried every type of, 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 of punisher basically. I had a lady once who'd even got a foghorn she got a phone okay. call and every time a dog barked, she's like, mm. you know, so, um, which I'm sure the neighbours would love. But so, but or if the punisher is great enough 
for the dog to be really affected by it and invariably traumatized by it probably then we oppress it so the dog is now like do you know what whatever that dog was experiencing when they saw the trigger the primary emotional response the primary thought primary part of that processing is not is to avoid that that happening again uh, but that is a huge traumatic event to go through even for a human uh, you know we don't do electric shock therapies now, not in this country. We don't do isolation therapies now, not in this country. We have an understanding about these things. But even in human psychology, Victoria, it was only 20 years ago, maybe, um, where young people with behavioral challenges, we would still be trying to deal with that in a kind of a harsh way, in a, in a kind of um, a shut down way. Now we recognize that actually it is invariably uh, often a, a frustration of not being able to communicate emotional need is, is the core issue for these young kids. And we look at um, uh, modifying the environment and how we communicate to help to reduce those trigger points, um, to try and reduce the level of dysregulation that children might have. Uh, and I think, you know, people like yourself and others, uh, as we move on in the industry, move forward we need to start going down the same approach with dogs we just have to see things differently we have to think of the psychology of behavior away from the operant stuff the operant stuff is important of course it's there we know about it but it, when we think about the psychology of behavior and the need for behavior as an output for emotional responses and emotional triggers the operant discussions become less valid the fact that we can change and manipulate a behavior because we can is less important as what was the dog trying to share with us through their behavior about their experience. And there you, there, there you go. You kind of, you hit the nail on the head. What is the dog trying to share with us? What is the dog trying to say? And shock collars and other methods of punishment, as you said, put so beautifully, it's telling a dog, just shut up. Yeah, I'm not really concerned about how you feel. I just want this behavior to stop. And I'm not saying that for some people, I agree. If you've got an, a Cujo at the other end of your leash and you see you have that positive reinforcement that you press the remote and the dog stops lunging at another dog as it walks past, but it's a success, of course. And you might see it as being safer. And you've been positively reinforced because you've seen an immediate change in behavior, i.e. the cessation of that behavior. And it might happen, as you said, when another dog walks past, the dog doesn't do it. That's for you. And it's for society. And maybe you don't even care about the dog's experience. But here's the point. And the point is, is that behavior will come back because you have put that plaster or that band-aid on which has been very effective to stem that wound right there and then but it is going to come off and so when you you're got you have just made that anxious stressed out insecure dog that is behaving in this way for whatever reason Maybe it wants to dominate the other dog. You've just made it worse. 
And there's a great saying in human psychology terms, which is emotions will always find a way out. So you can suppress the dog one way, but that need for relief will come out somewhere else. Maybe it might come out in the same context. You might end up, you know, we, we all know stories of dogs that are seem fine and then suddenly something happens. Uh, we all know of dogs who will run through those electric fences if the trigger's big enough. But quite often it comes out in a different way. And when I went to see that family up on the moors with that electric fence, um, it was definitely that the dog's stress at not being able to roam around the grounds in a free way because he didn't know when the, when the thing was going to kick off. He had a bit of a beep noise come in and that enough would start the stress system going. So he couldn't even feel comfortable in what they thought was a nice environment for him, but it wasn't. So well, that, that, that is how, sorry to interrupt you, but that is how that's the market here in America where electric fences, I mean, my neighborhood is full of electric fences because a lot of American real estate you either don't want a fence around your house because it's not that attractive, it's too expensive, or you live in a neighborhood where you're not allowed fences. So then you get an electric fence and the marketing is clever. It is freedom for your dog. It is freedom. That's how it's marketed. And that shows such a misunderstanding of what is actually going on. And this is why, again, it's a really good point. We are wasting our time with all the education we do around the operant stuff because we need to start educating caregivers about their dog's emotional experience because a lot of these, once they start to see it and they get it, many people will start to, those, that empathy and compassion that they already have for their dog in other contexts will come through once they understand this stuff. And, and this thing about narrative, changing narratives is very important because, um, uh, there is a, on the other side of the fence, they, they dismiss the idea of management. As they say, so what, what, why are you fanning around with management? And can, it's a bit of a cop out and all this kind of stuff. Whereas management really is just a sign of a great caregiver. If you have a partner, anybody listening who has a partner with social phobias, for example, do you get out in the pub or the bar on a Saturday night? No, because you know it will be too much for them. So it's not a cop out, you're just a great carer. So a lot of the time, you know, when we think about these apparent red zone dogs. The first port of call is we can help this dog by avoiding the situations that are triggering for them. It is not a cop out. It's a really important place to start. But using that snake analogy from earlier, Victoria, if you're kicking off around snakes, I've got to keep you away from snakes. And if I have to, for whatever reason, have you around snakes, then I need to help you over time to get it so you can feel differently around snakes. This is, this is just the reality of it. We don't talk in these terms enough because we keep talking in operant terms. And even on our side of the fence, it just fuels this operant merry-go-round where we're stopping the real attention. And the focus always, for me, and I know it's for you, and we have to make, keep talking about this stuff, the focus has to be on that dog's experience. I'm very excited because the courses that we are developing for everyday dog lovers incorporates a lot of what we're saying. Brave, which is uh, coping strategies, which is my, my, my new series of courses that will come out, coping strategies for every dog. Highlights, we're not even talking operant. We're talking about dog's experience and emotional experience, but one of the ways we deal with a behavior is that there are two ways. The first is management. 
The second will be skills. But the management is sometimes seen by, so certainly the people who are like, yeah, I can train a dog to stop chasing sheep because I put a shop collar in and everything. And we say, well, why don't you actually just put a, when your dog is walking past the sheep, why don't you just put it on the leash? Well, that's seen as a cop-out. That's seen as weakness. I mean, I've been called a snowflake. I've been called everything because, but, but to me, it's just common sense. Because any day that leash, that lead is going to manage that behavior, to stop that behavior of chasing. You're advocating for your dog. Just a side note, I recently have been um, doing an article for an animal welfare organization in the United Kingdom and it was about uh, question. It was about my book, The Ultimate Guide to Raising a Puppy. And it was tips that they could use for their welfare organization regarding puppies and what people could do for their puppies. And one of those is, what can you do to prepare your puppy to go to the vet? And one of the things that I said was, teach your puppy to wear a muzzle. And I received an email saying, we, are, we love that, we love that answer that you gave, but um, our vets want to take out the muzzle part. And are you okay with that? And I wrote this email back and I sent them the article that I'd written about the importance of muzzle training. I sent that to them and said, this is, this is, a dog might, where a muzzle at some point in its life, it might be in pain. And yet you're saying, I can't put this in because your vets don't agree with it. It's not they don't agree with it. They don't understand that in fact, if you teach a puppy to wear a muzzle from a very young age, or even that adult dog that you've just adopted, and you introduce that muzzle, it becomes a positive thing. It becomes a familiar thing. So even when you use the muzzle in a vet's surgery, if the dog is under stress, that muzzle becomes something familiar. They didn't understand it. And we're talking about vets here, veterinarians did not understand it. And I understand they don't get a lot of education in actual behavior. But I mean, this is just another example where, where they're not understanding that dog's experience. Do, do you understand what I mean? I know I sort of went off on a tangent there. No, I, I agree with you. I, this is the thing. I think, um, and you're absolutely right with vets. I, I do a lot of work with vets locally, and um, I give my little talk uh, on sensory integration and processing and, and the kind of emotional stuff. And they all get it when they hear it. And the, the good thing about that is then they get why we might think about pain trials, about uh, joined up thinking, about working with the veterinary teams, about why the importance of vet checks to make sure that there's nothing cognitive or physiological going on. They suddenly get it now. A lot of vets over here in the UK, they might do half a day on behavior and invariably there's an operant angle to it. And I think coming back to what you were saying earlier about, about, um, about management seeing as a cop-out, what we've got to recognize is for the last probably 40 years, we've been heavily driven by an operant conversation that says we can control dogs' behavior through operant means. We have the ability to control them without ever questioning whether we should and whether actually the fact that we can make a dog do something 
as opposed to help them manage the environment so they don't have to feel they need to do it in the first place, it skewed the, the conversation so strongly. You know, putting your dog, you know, we don't, you know, uh, our next door neighbor, their, their, um, their uh, uh, daughter's coming down uh, from up in Scotland. They don't come down very often. They've had a child, the child's only 12 months. They've put a net on the top of their fishing pond, on the, not fishing pond, on the top of their pond, just in case, because they can't expect a very young little, you know, one or two year old who's, who's toddling around to know about that. We, we forget what dogs are. They're, they're amazing animals, but our expectations of them are ludicrous and they are supported through this notion that because, as I say, we can control behavior through operant means, it stops us thinking about whether we should. And the quest that the, the management is powerful and it can change. It's powerful. Behavior. And it's Very also this. It's the quickest thing, Victoria, isn't it? It's the easiest. Often it's yes. the easiest thing, you know? It is the yeah. easiest thing. And, you know, I say change behavior. It's, it's, it's safety, right? So, so you, when you, you talk about putting the netting over the pool and, you know, that immediately makes me think of before I could actually teach my daughter, Alex, that if she gets to the top step when she's a toddler, you know, she might fall down, right? She might be in danger. Before I can actually teach her how to go up and down steps safely, I use a baby gate to keep yeah. her safe. And I don't think there's any dog trainer, any dog lover, anybody out there that would say that's, that's a snowflake thing to do, putting a baby <laughs> gate so your kid can't, can't, can't go down the stairs. But then when I say, if you've got a dog that is uncomfortable with guests coming in, then would be feel safer, Use a baby gate and keep the dog behind the baby gate. I'm called a snowflake. Yeah, and this comes back to that narrative of this this notion of control of behaviour over with opera means the narrative of if there's a problem, train, and if there's still a problem, train more, as though that's always the answer. And finally, and this is a big thing, this notion of hundred percent. There is no such thing, in my opinion, as a hundred percent recall, as a hundred percent behaviour, because we're relying upon that dog to have, to be in a stable enough state to access what we've done. There will always be something that is extra triggering. In my early psychology career, Victoria, I worked with the military over here in the UK for two years. And uh, we have a, a group of amazing uh, men and women who are trained within into their lives. But guess what? That training can and does fail. That training can and does fail. We see it a lot because uh, uh, even in, in any, my, my husband's an end of life nurse and he, he's, he has to do a lot of stuff and, uh, and they're trained very highly. But again, that, that training can and will fail. This is, we have to remember this stuff. So uh, I see it a lot of the time. I, there was an incident here recently and it was, it was tragic really. Uh, a guy who, was, who walked his dog off the leash um, because his dog's amazing, right? So, and his dog's really well trained and he's a bloke and all this kind of stuff, I, I'm guessing, I don't know. Uh, and then the, the, the man's wife had come home early, was walking down the road, the opposite side of the road. The dog saw its mom run across the road and got run over. So there is no 100%. So this is the narrative that supports this, which ends up being anti-management, as though it's a cop-out. And, and it's a bit of a niggle for me. And um, we almost have to give our clients permission to do the simple sometimes. You know, put that privacy film on the window or keep your dog on a lead or... Uh, you know, take the dog outside to meet the guests before they come in. These kind of little things that can make a huge difference, actually. 
rather than even if you're using positive training, you could be there three months doing loads of funky training and, and get to the same results. So why not just do it? Andrew, um, I knew it. What an incredible conversation. And I really hope that, guys, if you're listening to this podcast, I hope that it's really helped you. And I hope that you're going to share it with all of your friends and anybody who loves and works with dogs. Because this isn't a new way of thinking, but it, it's not thought about a lot. It's the way we teach PSA. And it makes us more effective in the long run and in the short term, but in the long run as well, when we understand that dog's experience. Andrew, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I am going to ask you to come back because I love our conversations and because it's always enlightening. I always learn things as well from you. And so I just want to say thank you so much. If people want to hire you or find out more about you, where would they go? Uh, so um, my website www.trainpositive.co.uk over here in the in the UK. Um, uh, I'm going to be launching a new blog soon, so I'll let you know about that, Victoria, and you can you can share that out. It's just a chance to kind of put stuff up there. But um, thanks for having me along. It's great to talk about these things. And um, you know, I say everything we say, and we always say this, don't we? We say it without judgment. If anybody's hearing stuff and they've done stuff, I get it. I get. A lot of the problematic behaviors are the ones that irritate us the most. Um, and we can all do things when, because we just want to have our dogs not be like that. I get it. But all you and I really need from people listening to this talking is that people get it. Just get it and start thinking about their dog's experience a little bit. Uh, so I, I just thank you for having me along. And, and, and you do a great job with, the, with the, you know, your VSPDTs and the VSA. Uh, and it's just great that we can link up and talk about this stuff. Um, and uh, it'll be great to come back again for sure. So thank you. Well, guys, that's it. I knew you were going to have a great one today, and it's just going to, you know, again, food for thought. Thank you so much for joining us. Please do stay safe, stay healthy, and we, uh, I will see you next week. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Victoria Stillwell's Positively Podcast. For more information, visit Positively.com. Get connected on Facebook and YouTube as Victoria Stillwell or follow her on Twitter at Victoria S. Be sure to tune in next time as Victoria helps to change dogs' lives positively. Positively.